Well, good evening, guys. Well, hey, real quick, first of all, before I dive in, and there's something I'd like to share um, sincerely from the bottom of my heart, I do want to thank you. Um, it, it's fun to be here. I've never been here before. And people have talked about you uh, literally all over the country. There are 115 different universities now who this year have been inspired to uh, dare to feed one because of you, because of your sacrifice, because of your faithfulness. Um, I have literally heard people talk about the generosity and the investment that this group, this community here on the campus of MU has been a part of. Um, I know what it's like to look into the eyes of the kids. I just got back from India, Sri Lanka, Nicaragua, I can't remember, and Spain. I can't remember everywhere I've been in the last six months, but I've looked into the eyes of kids who have been fed because of people like you. And so two things. First, I want to honor you because, believe it or not, $10 a month can literally rewrite somebody's story forever. $10 a month feeds a child in the program of Convoy of Hope. And I want to be clear, uh, Convoy of Hope is not a Christian version or a Christian brand of compassion. Compassion was God's idea all along, okay? And so if you preach a gospel apart from justice and compassion, you preach a gospel Jesus never preached, right? Jesus did not just heal the leper. He reached out and touched the leper. He did not just heal the woman who was bleeding for 12 years in Mark chapter 5. Instead, he, he looked at her and he used an Aramaic term of endearment. He called her daughter. If you preach a gospel apart from justice and compassion, you preach a gospel Jesus never preached. However, if all we do is focus on justice and compassion apart from the gospel, we simply prescribe people a better brand of eternal misery. So it's not either or, it's both and. So I want to honor you. $10 a month not only feeds a child in Convoy of Hope's program for an entire month, it literally changes everything. And so not only that, but literally God is using you to inspire 115 different universities. So Tom, Missy, and all of the leadership here, I honor you, and I really appreciate the investment you're making. So and I honor you guys. Thank you. Um, yeah. So Convoy of Hope, for those of you who have no idea what that is, Convoy of Hope is a relief and development organization, a driving passion to feed the world. And if we could pick one thing to drive a stake in the ground on, we want to end the cycle of physical and spiritual poverty, starting initially with uh, global hunger. Um, over $1 billion now uh, has been distributed through the hands and feet of Convoy of Hope, and over 100 million people have been served now. And that's all because Jesus whispered into the ears of our founder, Hal Donaldson, and he dared to listen. How many of you know that when you simply dare to listen to the whisper of the Holy Spirit, um, amazing things happen, right? And so what I want to talk to you about today, though, is um, maybe one of the other whispers that we hear from the Holy Spirit that isn't always fun, okay? And I want to talk to you actually about a topic that I've been studying on and researching for about three years now. I want to just do a deep dive into the 23rd Psalm. Now, I don't know what your, your faith orientation is or maybe what your background is. What I do know is this. I've had conversations with Christians, Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, atheists, agnostics, both in the United States and in other parts of the world who have heard some of the language from Psalm 23. 
regardless of our faith orientation or our denominational background, the literature in Psalm 23 is not only poetic, it really is something that seems to echo in quite a few of the hearts of the individuals I've been in conversation with. If you walked in tonight and you received a book, Grace in the Valley, listen, that's hot off the press. It actually releases next Tuesday all over the country, and so you're getting a sneak peek. So if you read if you read it and you like it, and if you listen to me communicate tonight and you like it, I invite you to be a part of my launch team, okay? And the way to do that is just get on social media and say something. If you don't like what I say tonight and you hate the book, it's okay, all right? You won't hurt my feelings, I promise. But about three years ago, I just uh, really began to find myself in Psalm 23. I couldn't get away from it. And I found myself asking this question, what do we do, what do I do, when I face a situation that does not line up with what I know to be true about God? We know that when Jesus came to the earth, Jesus didn't necessarily come to teach us what to believe. I would suggest he came to teach us how to believe. Someone once said, we don't memorize Jesus, we become like him. And one of the primary ways we become like Jesus is when we embrace one of the primary methods he employed when it comes to teaching. Now, if anyone is familiar with teaching, it's you. You're a student. Day in and day out, you sit in the classroom. I empathize with you. I'm a student too. And listen, I just have to thank God. I just submitted my first draft of my PhD thesis. I had my, yeah, that's worth clapping for. And so I had, a, I had a Skype today with two of my advisors in London, okay? Fortunately, it was the end of their day and the beginning of mine, so they were worn out. But intellectual hazing has begun. So for the next 120 days, they will convince me I'm an absolute moron and saturated with idiocy. And then hopefully in about five months when I stand up and to defend, I will get a green light. And I learned something about learning on the PhD journey. I learned that much of learning has less to do with content. It has much more to do with questions. Education isn't necessarily answering questions. Education is questioning some of the answers we've been given. And of the 125 teaching incidents of Jesus recorded in the Gospels, 13 start with content, and the rest start with questions. So one of the primary ways Jesus sought to Introduce people to the kingdom of God is by asking questions. It's not necessarily what you would expect from someone who claims to be the truth. And in the Greek New Testament, we see that there are a few words for miracle. When you think of a miracle, you think of God who um, restores sight to someone who is blind. I've seen that happen. God, those things happen. Job is right that God performs wonders that cannot be fathomed and miracles that cannot be counted. We know that God can actually heal people who are deaf. Last summer, I saw God miraculously heal a girl who was born deaf. When you think of a miracle, you think of those things. You think of a marriage that was dead, and God breathed life into it. You think of somebody who was struggling with depression and mental illness, anxiety, and they began to wake up again, and joy once again came in the morning. When you think of Jesus, you typically, if you're like I am, you think of miracles. But one of the Greek words for miracle in the New Testament is mysterion, where we get our word mystery. And some of the most profound, prolific miracles that God performs are mysteries. And we know that when Jesus came to the earth and when Jesus communicated truth, the Gospel of Matthew tells us this. I believe it's Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, that he shrouds truth in mystery to expose the heart. And you can tell a lot about who you are and who you perceive him to be 
not when you find yourself sitting in the green pasture, but when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And so tonight, for just a few minutes, and I promise I will end on time, I would like to just walk you through Psalm 23 and invite you into an experience I had about 15 months ago in a hospital room when my wife, Allie, of almost 21 years, um, I literally, the week before, I watched God heal a girl who was born deaf, and then a week later, I'm in the hospital room with my wife. Uh, she was really struggling. She was hanging on. I was convinced that either God had to perform a miracle or I was going to lose her. And so in the wee hours of the morning, when it's just Allie and I, I'm in the hospital room. I've got my black, you know, actual paper Bible open, and it's just me and Jesus, and I'm rereading Psalm 23 over and over and over and over and over again. And have you ever read a passage in the Bible where you've read it a few dozen or maybe a few thousand times, but then all of a sudden when you read it, it's like you've read it for the first time? Well, that's what happened to me last summer, once again in Psalm 23. And I found myself asking this question yet again. What if the green pasture and the valley of the shadow of death are actually the same place? What if a miracle and a mystery are actually the same thing? So what do you do when you encounter a situation that does not line up with what you know to be true about God? That's what I want to talk to you about tonight. And I would suggest that you choose to trust God, even if your situation gives you a reason not to. So Psalm 23, I believe it's on the screens behind me. Um, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want or I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, Goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we know that typically the psalm is ascribed to David. We know that the words that are written in your Bible and in mine were actually not penned by David's hand because the words in our Bible are not in 10th century BCE Hebrew. What we do know is David would have sung the psalm, recited the psalm, and over a few centuries uh, somebody would have captured it, as it was passed down through oral tradition, a scribe initially would have written it down, hence the words we have in our Bible today. If you want to put your finger in history at the approximate time when David would have recited the psalm, you can put your finger around 1 Samuel chapter 22. Because if we want to understand what the Bible means, we must first understand what it meant. So around 1 Samuel chapter 22, we are introduced to a young man named David. Now, if you're not familiar with David, that's okay. I didn't know who David was until I was almost 18 years of age. So I didn't grow up in church. I didn't know anything about Jesus. Actually, I'm a former Satanist. I grew up and I, my goal was to memorize the Satanic Bible. I was steeped in witchcraft and the occult. I had a lot of unique experiences that I really won't get into. But I knew that the spiritual realm was real, and after I met Jesus for the first time at the age of 17, I started reading the Bible. And so I remember for the first time when I read Psalm 23, and I remember for the first time when I read about David, how God brought down, brought down the giant named Goliath through a few small stones that were in the hand of David. So if, you've never, if you're not familiar with David, that's okay. We all have to start somewhere. 
But in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're introduced to someone whose name is David. David, his father, Jesse, David was one of many sons. And the Bible tells us this, that the Lord communicates to a prophet who is named Samuel. He instructed Samuel to go to the house of Jesse. And he said, Jesse, I want, or, I want you to go to Jesse's house. You will select the next king over Israel there. And so the prophet obeys. He goes to Jesse's house. He walks in. He seeks to choose the next king. And it's interesting that the Lord sent the prophet to Jesse's house, even though the next king was not in Jesse's house. The next king, David, was in the field. And tonight, somebody needs to know that, that sometimes the Lord sends you to places and that the reason you think you're being sent to that place isn't necessarily the reason why you're being sent to that place. So the prophet walks into Jesse's house. David is nowhere to be found, and so he waits. And would you know it, David all of a sudden walks into the door, and in a moment, his life has changed. He is handpicked by God and chosen to be the king over the nation of Israel. If you would have asked anybody in Israel, who is the king over your nation, they would have said King Saul. That's who sat on the throne at that time. If you would have asked anyone in heaven who is the king of Israel, heaven would have said David. There's a conversation going on in heaven that we are unaware of. And our conversation is much more real than anything you hear on this earth. David was handpicked by God to be king, but rather than moving into the palace where he would find himself surrounded by bodyguards, David actually ends up going back and he is a shepherd. At this time in history, to be a shepherd, it was an insulting vocation. Shepherds were not even considered capable of telling the truth. A shepherd was not allowed to test testify uh, in a criminal hearing because they were accused and assumed to be nothing but liars and cheats. David goes back, and the one who's handpicked by God is a shepherd. We know that God brings down the giant named Goliath in 1 Samuel 17 through David's mighty hand. David, an accomplished warrior, finds himself serving King Saul. And King Saul, who is insecure, who is jealous, actually tries to murder David on more than one occasion. And what do you do? What do you do when you've been handpicked by God himself to rule over a nation, and yet rather than living in the king's palace where you are surrounded by bodyguards, where you can lead a nation into prosperity and significance and success, you find yourself on more than one occasion being hunted down like chattel. Somebody wants to kill you. People spread rumors about you. You're being bullied, manipulated, and you feel all alone. Here's what I know. There are a lot of people who love Jesus who often sit in quiet desperation. And David finds himself, by the time you come to 1 Samuel 22, he is sitting in quiet desperation. He finds himself in a place called the Forest of Hereth. And according to rabbinical tradition, David is starving to death. It's not that David hasn't eaten for three days. It's not that David has lost five pounds. Rabbinical tradition is clear. David is literally starving to death. And in that moment, that's when David would have sung Psalm 23. In the forest of Hereth, when the sun sets over the great Sinai Peninsula and King Saul's bodyguards seek to murder him, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Isn't it interesting that he does not say the Lord is my king? He does not say the Lord is the mighty warrior. The Lord is my great deliverer? No. He says the Lord is my shepherd. David hearkens back to that time when it was just he and God underneath the stars. Whereas a little boy, when his faith... And God was simple. 
If I could give you a gift tonight, I would give you the gift of simplicity in your faith. Because oftentimes we complicate what is supposed to be so simple. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Really, David, you're starving to death. You're surrounded by people who want to murder you, and you have the audacity to say, I shall not want. How many of you know contentment is a place we come to in life? He makes me lie down in green pastures. It's easy to invert that, is it not? It's easy to forget that he makes us lie down in green pastures and we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Oftentimes you walk through the green pasture and unfortunately many of us choose to lie down in the valley. And you need to remind yourself because your self-talk is formative, your self-talk is prophetic, and you cannot always believe everything you think and you cannot always believe everything you feel that even if your valley is long, steep, and dark, and lonely, whatever you do, don't lie down. Because it's only a shadow. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. That's probably the most humorous line to me in the entire psalm. He leads me beside still waters. Really. Like in Mark chapter 4, Jesus. When you tell your disciples to get into the boat on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, knowing full well a storm would break. A storm that was so violent, it blew the ship 13 miles off course. And in the midst of the storm, when everybody is convinced they're going to die, Jesus is where? He's not barreling uh, water out of the hull of the ship. Jesus is in the bottom of the boat asleep. And he is stirred and awoken by his disciples who are convinced they're about to die. And I can just imagine the conversation going something like this. Jesus, what's your problem? Don't you realize we're about to die? Why don't you wake up and calm the storm? And I can just imagine Jesus saying something like this. What do you mean, calm the storm? Don't you see, Heath, the waters are always still. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. I don't know if you noticed, but the righteous paths, paths is plural. Don't you love it when the righteous path leads to the green pasture? But there's another righteous path that leads to the valley of the shadow of death. But what if the green pasture and the valley of the shadow of death are actually the same place? In the middle of the psalm, something unique happens, and David, who is actually singing this for the first time in 10th century Hebrew, a language that, quite honestly, many would say is extinct today. It is, but it isn't. The language in the psalm changes, and he describes God in a unique personal way. There's a difference between proximity and intimacy. And in the first half of the psalm, he talks about God and uses language that I would liken to proximity. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. But when you leave the green pasture and you come into the valley of the shadow of death, he becomes you. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I learned something last year in the hospital room that sometimes what we think is a spiritual attack is actually an invitation by God to feast. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I'll come back to that. Goes on to say, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. So here was the custom. At this time in history, because it was a male-dominated society, unfortunately, women were not respected and treated the way they should have been. And because shepherds were nomadic people, when the sun would begin to set, the male shepherd would say to his family and his clan, and if he was a wealthy shepherd, even some of the servants, stay here, I'm going to go over there. And everybody knew what was about to happen. So I would say to my family, stay here, and I would begin to wander towards your camp. And here's the way it would go down. The male shepherd in your family would get up from the tent. Somebody would say, Dad, somebody's coming. And then the picture is you would have two male shepherds standing in a valley. And without saying a word, here was the hospitality custom. You took a small container of oil. Uh, some say it was a horn of oil. Typically, it usually wasn't. It was usually in a small jar, a ceramic jar. And you took oil and you extended it to me. And without saying a word, I took the oil and I anointed my head with it. And the reason I did that is it had two purposes. Number one, the oil had a medicinal purpose. It killed head lice. But secondly, the oil had an aromatic purpose. We've been wandering around the desert. There is no Hilton Garden Inn. We have no Axe Body Spray. There is no Aqua de Joe. There is no Old Spice. There's no Bath and Body Works. So we have horrific body odor. Okay? So we've been wandering around the desert. I anoint my head with oil. The oil kills head lice and it covers over my BL. And then without saying a word, I knew intuitively, because this was the custom, that you are inviting me and my entire immediate family into your tent where we will share a meal. And so the two shepherds had their two families. You lay on a side, you eat with one hand, and our meal, if we're common folk, would typically consist of flatbread, raisin cakes, some dates, maybe some curds and honey, depending upon what time of year it was. And at the end of the meal, without saying a word, here was the custom. You got up and you walked up to me, and I hold out my cup, where you took your wineskin, and if you filled my cup up halfway, it was your way of saying, you know what, Heath, we've really enjoyed the conversation, but you better be leaving now. But if you fill my cup up all the way to the top, it was your way of saying, why don't you spend the night with us? And in the morning, before we bid you farewell on your journey, we'll share another meal together. And here's what would happen if you fill my cup up to the top. After the wives and the kiddos fell asleep, the two shepherds would sit around the campfire, and they took their rod and their staff. Sometimes the rod and the staff was one instrument. Sometimes it was two. It just depends. And you took your rod and your staff, and the shepherd would sit around the campfire and turn their rod and their staff around because shepherds carved testimonies into their rod. When David would have killed both the lion and the bear, he would have carved that into a staff. And they did what Psalm 77, 11 says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. And the shepherds sat around the campfire with their rod and their staff, and they stayed up into the wee hours of the morning and shared story after story, testimony after testimony. Now we understand why Moses, the shepherd, took his rod and struck it out in front of him, and God parted the water. But it's almost like Moses took all of the miracles God performed in the past, and he said, God, would you do it again? Now we know why John wrote, 
to the believers when he was banished on the Isle of Patmos because, after all, he was dipped, according to church tradition, dipped in a cauldron of oil, and that did not kill him, so they threw him away like trash on the Isle of Patmos where he has a revelation, not the revelation of the end times, but the revelation of Jesus. He has a revelation of Jesus, and John tells us this, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There's something spiritual about remembering what God did. Because if God did it before, how many of you know he can do it again? And it's more than just a song sung by Elevation Church, even though it's a great song. <laughs> they took the rod and their staff, and they remembered the deeds of the Lord. Now we understand why David said, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. One of the worst things we can do in the valley is to pick up anything other than the rod and the staff and let it comfort us. One of the worst things we can do is try to find that last piece of comfort from a boyfriend or a girlfriend or even a spouse or from a counselor or from medicine. Those things aren't bad. But at the end of the day, there is a spot in our soul that is only fully and finally satisfied with the rod and the staff of God. It is his word. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But David, when he recites the psalm, he does not say that God fills his cup up halfway, does he? And God doesn't even fill his cup up to the top. David says, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Now we know why David who finds himself in the midst of a situation that does not line up with what he knows to be true about God. Rather than reducing God and creating a new theology, he chooses to trust God, even if, even if his circumstance gives him a reason not to. Now we know why David says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me, literally in Hebrew, will chase me or hunt me down. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell not in the palace and not in the king's castle, but I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What do you do when your situation does not line up with what you know to be true about God as revealed in Scripture? You trust him, even if your situation gives you every reason not to. That's what I've been learning in Psalm 23 that regardless of how steep and long the valley is, there's a grace there. Because after all, the grace of God is manifested in the green pasture and the valley of the shadow of death. But they're the same place. I'm going to invite the team to come. What I'd like to do tonight is just give you an opportunity maybe to just let the greatest communicator in the universe, his name is the Holy Spirit, have a conversation with you. There's one final detail of the psalm that I skimmed over. I'd like to revisit it in this moment. It says that God prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. When you wander around the corner in the valley, and the enemy, and the enemy is very real. I know that sometimes people blame, blame things on the evil one, and some people are a bit too hyper-spiritual. But when you read the Bible, it's unequivocally clear that what you don't see is much more real than anything you do see. 
And I think to focus on the tactics of the enemy is foolish. We're never instructed in the Bible to fix our eyes on the evil one. We are instructed to fix our eyes on Jesus. To ignore his reality, however, is equally as foolish. And what we do know is if anybody knows how to throw a party, God does. And I remember when our girls were little. We have two girls. We have a, our oldest daughter actually starts university this January. And our youngest daughter uh, graduates high school this January. We home educate, so they've expedited their process. And they're growing up a little too fast for my taste. But when our kids were a lot younger and it was birthday time, my wife was really passionate about throwing birthday parties. And I'm convinced somebody is right now burning $100 bills in their fireplace because this person came up with the idea and said, let's convince crazy moms and crazy grandmas around the world that every single birthday party needs to be cute. And so they built these huge party stores where you can walk in and you can buy plates and streamers and balloons and forks, spoons, and knives because after all, everybody knows a five-year-old needs all three pieces of silverware at their birthday party, right? And everything has to match and be cute. And so when it was time for the birthday party back in the day, uh, here's what we did. We always went to the party store. We had a budget, walked into the party store, and with the budget, Allie always picked out all the cute stuff. It was typically pink and purple because that's the way our girls rolled, okay? Everything had to match. Everything was cute. As far as I was concerned, I could care less if my whole house was pink. What I cared about was the cake, okay? And so I'm a cake guy. I love cake, and uh, I'm a firm believer if you're going to eat cake, you might as well eat a real cake. Can I get a witness, right? Buttercream, right? The full-on buttercream. Like if you go to a birthday party and they serve that spray-painted Cool Whip stuff, just leave, okay? So we dropped we drop serious coin on the cake, and so I'm, a, I'm all about the cake. So anyway, we had the cake, the tablecloths, the balloons, and everything. But probably the most important part of party planning was the invitation list. And so we made it a fun experience. We all sat down at the kitchen table, and Allie and I got out our pen and our paper, and we began to ask the girls, who would you like to invite to the party? Well, I would like to invite Emma. You do? Why, honey, would you like to invite Emma? Because Emma is my friend. I play with Emma at recess. All right, sweetie, you can invite Emma. Leighton, who would you like to invite, honey? I would like to invite Tanner. Really, you want to invite Tanner. Why would you like to invite Tanner to the birthday party? Because I think Tanner's cute. I'm going to marry him one day. Okay? <laughs> so on the invitation list, you've got Tanner, you've got Emma, and you've got a boatload of other people. I don't recall a time ever when I looked at my wife and I said, hey, sweetie, let's invite the creepy neighbor. Has anybody been, has anybody been released on parole lately? Let's invite them. Anybody on the weirdo list? Let's make sure they receive an invitation. Let's invite all of the friends and family members that are going to single-handedly destroy the entire experience for our family. We never did that. We sat down and we created the list of, of invitees because we knew that no matter how good the cake is, no matter how cute the decorations are, who you invite to the party is significant. And Allie knew how to throw a good birthday party. But if anyone knows how to throw a party, it's God. And who does God invite to your feast? Your enemy. He prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemy. And just imagine the look on his face. 
the evil one when he comes around the corner. He left the green pasture and he comes around the corner and there it is, the valley of the shadow of death. And if you're like David, you're starving to death. You're all alone. You're isolated. You're in the midst of a situation. You've been handpicked by God to rule and reign and yet you're running for your life. Everybody thinks you're a coward and you've betrayed the king. But you know the true story, don't you? But no one else seems to. Can you imagine the look on the evil one's face when he comes around the corner and there you are, alone, weak, isolated, and he thinks he's defeated you. But when he looks a little bit closer, what does he see? There he is, the father, standing right in the middle of your valley with a table. And if you'll notice, all of your favorite things are on the table. And there's two spots at the table, one for God and one for you. And the evil one has to stand there and watch in your valley while God pours out, pull, pulls out your chair, says, come here, son. Come here, sweetie. Have a seat. And what you thought was an attack from the enemy, sincerely, was an invitation by God. If this group is like every other group, I guarantee there are people in this room who right now you're facing situations that are very serious and very heartbreaking and very discouraging. And if you're like me, sometimes you find it hard to lift up your voice and sing. Sometimes you find it hard to be vulnerable in the presence of God because you find yourself standing in a valley and you know he's promised a green pasture. And tonight you need to remember that they're the same place. And if you focus on the enemy, you're in the valley. But if you turn your back on the enemy because he's not even worth your attention and you dare to gaze on the king's table, you'll be amazed at how quickly your valley blooms. And tonight, I want to give you an opportunity to let the peace of God and the grace of God come and meet you in your valley. So I'm going to ask you to stand your feet and I'm going to move quickly. I'm going to ask you to be honest and vulnerable. And I'm going to ask that uh, maybe we could have respect for one another right now in a sincere way. And I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes open. And um, about 16 months ago, when I'm in the hospital, I am I'm working on my doctorate. I have memorized countless scriptures. I was a minister for about 20 years, and I found myself really struggling in my faith. I wasn't doubting the existence of God. I was doubting his goodness, and I was doubting whether or not he was going to come through. And can I tell you what happened? My wife didn't jump up out of the hospital bed and run around instantaneously. Why did God heal the deaf girl instantly, but it took my wife about seven months to get better? I have no idea. It's a mystery. No, it's a miracle. So whether or not it happens instantaneously or it happens over a period of time, the key is he is who he says he is right? So I'm going to ask you a question that requires vulnerability. If tonight you would say, you know what? Um, I'm experiencing a situation and I would like to invite God's grace into my valley. Um, I'm not going to ask you what it is. Uh, nobody's going to ask you necessarily to repeat it back to them. But we do want to do what the New Testament says, which is bear one another's burdens and so, so fulfill the law of Christ. And we certainly want to make sure that you walk out of here a little bit lighter in your soul than maybe the way some of you walked in here. I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable. 
if that's you and you're facing a situation that does not line up with the goodness of God and you would be vulnerable and audacious enough to ask God yet again in prayer for his grace to come and meet you in the valley. Well, tonight, the good news is you don't need to do that alone because there are people in this room who have been in a valley, they are in a valley, or one day soon they'll be in one. And so we're going to do this thing together. And if tonight you would just like prayer and you'd be willing to say, that's me, Um, I need somebody to pray with me. I'm not going to call you forward. I am going to ask you to raise your hand, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand now quickly, please. If you could just raise your hand and say, that's me. Um, I'm going to raise my hand to a God I don't see. And tonight I want somebody to pray with me. Okay, if you could keep it up. There's hands up all over the place. And here's what we're going to do. Dude, just do whatever you want to do. And if I say anything, just ignore me. Okay. So there are people with their hands up all over the room. And there is power in your prayer. And there's also power in your compassion. And there's, there's power when we're present with one another. So if there's somebody whose hand is up right by you, I'm going to ask you to put your hand on them. If you know them, you can embrace them. Wrap your arm around them. Put your hand on their shoulder. Uh, Be a friend and go ahead and lift up your voice and begin to pray for them. Go ahead. 